Throughout its history, New York City has served as a destination point for immigrants, and today is no different. Newcomers continue to settle here in large numbers, often in search of new and better lives. They plant roots and raise children. Good morning. I'm George Bolarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. The environment for immigrants who came to the United States during the early 20th century was a lot different than the one encountered by immigrants who've arrived more recently. The earlier wave, mostly European, was welcomed with open arms because the nation was hungry for unskilled immigrant labor. But more recent immigrants have faced discrimination in a society that places more value on educated labor. And that's raised the question, are there kids having more difficulty assimilating into American life than past generations? The answer is no, according to Dr. Philip Kassinitz, a sociology professor at the City University of New York Graduate Center and Hunter College. Kassinitz is the co-author of a book titled Inheriting the City, The Children of Immigrants Come of Age. He joins us now on the phone to talk about it. Dr. Kassinitz, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Well, thanks so much for having me on. Define second-generation immigrant for me. Well, second-generation immigrant, the way we're using it, uh, really means people who were born in the United States but whose parents are from other countries. In addition, however, we talk in the book a good deal about what's come to be called 1.5-generation immigrants, and that's folks who are born in other countries but arrived here before the age of 12. So they've had all their adult experiences in the United States. Why was it important for you to look into the lives of these kids? In many ways, my collaborators and I really felt that when one talks about immigrant incorporation, what sort of Americans the children of immigrants are becoming and what sort of America is getting created in the process, it's really a second-generation issue. You know, people argue a lot about immigration and its impacts on American society, but it really takes at least a generation to know how people fit into American society. Uh, I think that people who emigrate as adults, to some degree, are always fundamentally members of the society they came from. Whereas if folks who, you know, are between those two worlds. It's just really, really psychologically interesting when you think about it to come of age in a society that's different from the one your parents came of age. It really does create all kinds of interesting tensions, but also opportunities. And so we just thought that they were extremely important for the future of American society and also, by and large, really interesting people. And you looked into the lives of people between the ages of 18 and 32, right? That's correct. And from what groups? In this book, we were looking specifically at Chinese, Dominicans, South Americans, uh, West Indians, that's uh, people uh, from the English-speaking Caribbean, and Russian Jews. Those groups are largest in New York City? Those are, right. Those are probably the five largest groups in New York City, depending on how you define them. Uh, In addition, uh, one of the cool things about studying this in New York is that they give us a real range of different uh, racial and ethnic experiences. You know, that there's a group of African descent, uh, there's two Latino groups, uh, there's an Asian group, and there's a white immigrant group. People sometimes forget that in New York particular, there's still a fair number of white immigrants. How quick to assimilate are second-generation immigrants here in New York City? I think in many ways, second-generation immigrants are incorporating very successfully into American society. In a lot of ways, they look more like other New Yorkers their age than they do like their immigrant parents. Now, part of that is uh, a matter of assimilating, becoming like the folks around them, but part of that is the fact that they're changing the society around them at the same time. So if we want to talk about assimilation, it's important to remember that's not a one-way street. I mean, New York is being formed and reformed in the experience of people from other countries as they come of age here. Do they consider themselves mainstream? 
Again, it's an interesting question. You know, we ask them a lot uh, questions about, well, you know, what do you see yourself as American? And um, it's often a question of, well, compared to who? Uh, and if you're comparing them to their immigrant parents, they see themselves as very American. In fact, their parents often tell them, don't become so American or, or blame them for being too American. Compared to what they see as American in an abstract sense, I mean, very often we found people would talk about, particularly from the non-white groups, would say, well, in our minds, American sort of means white and Midwestern, and, you know, they they couldn't, you know, people they meet on te- see on television primarily, but don't meet much on the streets of New York. And compared to folks like that, they would say, no, there's lots of reasons why they don't consider themselves mainstream. Of all the groups you looked at, I noticed that the children of Chinese immigrants were least likely to maintain their native language. Mm-hmm. Why? Why is that? Interesting question. I think uh, there's a variety of reasons for that. One is, of course, that Chinese is just an extremely hard language to maintain literacy in. And so for many of the Chinese uh, children of immigrants, learning English was more important. Uh, of course, there's the many, many dialects of Chinese, and so even to speak to each other, sometimes English became the spoken lingua franca. Written Chinese is, of course, tremendously difficult if you don't have the educational institutions that are reinforcing that. But I think the other interesting part of that was that of all the groups we looked at, uh, the children of Chinese immigrants really were the most successful in terms of the educational system. Now, you compared the lives of children of immigrants to those of their native-born counterparts, and you also found, in addition to Chinese second-generation, that Russian second-generation immigrants also had more education than their native-born counterparts, right? Yes, the Russians were the other group that had very high levels of education. They were easier to understand because most of their parents had been highly educated in Russia. And in many cases, their parents had been working at jobs that were lower than their educational levels would suggest, both in the former Soviet Union, in part because of discrimination against Jews, uh, and then when they got here because of language skills. So you had a lot of people who were highly educated but had lost a lot of status through migration. The idea of education as a way to get ahead was just commonsensical. In the Russian community in New York, you find a lot of people who were former professionals, who were taxi drivers or factory supervisors, people who'd been doctors in the former Soviet Union who end up being dental hygienists or medical technicians here, you know, pharmacists, things like that. And so it's not a real surprise that they really push their kids to regain that uh, educational status. Do you think they're pushing their kids harder than the parents of native-born New Yorkers? Yes, I think that they definitely are. Whether that's a good thing or not, it's an interesting question. I mean, perhaps one of the advantages of being native-born is your parents don't have to push you that hard. But by and large, that push from the parents does tend to pay off in terms of educational success. Your research also found that the children of Chinese immigrants are more likely to put off having their own families until they complete their education. That's not necessarily the case with South Americans. That's correct. The groups do vary a lot in the timing of uh, marriage and the timing of childbearing. And one of the other interesting things about the Chinese is that they tend to put off marriage and childbearing fairly late. That probably ends up being an advantage to some extent because what it's going to mean is relatively small families. So there's a large number of adults contributing to the maintenance of a relatively small number of kids in that community. 
And that's probably good in terms of being able to invest a lot in the educational um, success of each individual child. I know that when I graduated college, I was looking to get out the door. I was ready to start my own life. That's not necessarily the case, though, with the children of immigrants. They're staying in their homes much longer. Yes, you picked that up. That's one of the most interesting findings that we had, is that Americans, and it's really interesting, this runs across the board racially, are native whites, are native African Americans, and even the um, Puerto Rico, you know, New York raised or, or mainland raised Puerto Ricans that we interviewed, all shared almost uniformly uh, the very American attitude that becoming a grown up means getting out the house. And in the U.S., we sort of see it that way. If, if, if you're living back in your parents' home after college or after the military, it's kind of something of a failure. You know, we talk about incompletely launched young adults. And for the children of immigrants, it was rarely seen that way. They were far, far more likely to live in their parents' homes well into their 20s and sometimes into their 30s. And they didn't see being a grown-up as synonymous with establishing their own household. And that's really, I think, very important in terms of explaining different kinds of outcomes. I mean, for one thing, in a really expensive housing market like New York, it is very, very difficult to establish your own household in, in your early 20s. And the fact that you feel that you're able to, you know, have a, be an adult and have adult relationships and adult responsibilities, but still be living at home with your parents without driving you or them completely crazy, probably allows people to uh, finish college, uh, particularly in the CUNY system where you've got all of these low-cost colleges available but that don't have dorm space, uh, allows people to get themselves more established in their work careers. There's just all sorts of ways in which that helps in a high-cost housing market. It probably wouldn't be nearly as big an advantage in a lower-cost housing market. The children of Dominican immigrants appear to be in the worst position as far as upward mobility. Is that right? That is true, yeah. Why? There's a variety of reasons. One is that their parents uh, are arriving in the country very poor. And not just are they on average poor, but they're fairly uniformly poor. The average immigrant is is quite impoverished, and the uh, more middle-class members of the community often don't seem to be investing as much in the community or spending as much time there. In some ways, it's a community in which better-off people tend to leave. So the Dominican community itself tends to have a, a high concentration of quite poor immigrants. Now, having said that, it's important to note that a lot of Dominican immigrants are quite upwardly mobile relative to their parents. And a lot of uh, the children of Dominican immigrants are quite upwardly mobile relative to their immigrant parents. So the education levels for the Dominican uh, respondents in our study were pretty low, but they were a lot higher, particularly for women, than their parents. The other thing is that Dominicans are a very transnational group. It's relatively easy to get back and forth from the Dominican Republic. Many expect to retire in the Dominican Republic, and a lot have invested money in the Dominican Republic. That's probably an advantage in some ways, but it also may lead to not accumulating much capital here. And then finally, Dominicans are almost certainly subject to higher levels of uh, racism and discrimination than some of the other groups. I was going to ask the question because I have often heard about tension between Puerto Ricans here in New York City and the Dominican population. Mm -hmm. Did your research tell you anything about that kind of relationship? Well, there is some. No question there is some discrimination between native minorities and the children of immigrants and then between the various discrimin uh, children of immigrant groups. But 
we frankly found less of that among the children of immigrants than among their immigrant parents. But there's also, you know, a fair amount of discrimination from whites and from the mainstream institutions. And in some ways, Dominicans are often the victims of racial discrimination, being largely of African descent and often seen as being black in the United States, and at the same time, often also seen as being Latino and uh, having, you know, all the issues of language that other Latino groups do. So in some ways, they're just uh, discriminated against uh, kind of on both grounds. And this shows, you know, in terms of job applications, uh, it certainly shows in terms of uh, where uh, people can live and, you know, housing discrimination, which continues to be a real problem. Let me ask you this. How much harder is life for the children of undocumented immigrants compared to those of legal immigrants? Much. And I'm really glad you raised that issue. The kids we studied, you know, were by and large documented or had become documented. And the reason is because their parents emigrated in the 1970s and 80s, by and large. They have already established themselves young adults. And their parents emigrated at a time when becoming legal was a lot easier than it is today. So during the 80s, many people emigrated to the United States. Many had entered the country undocumented or had been undocumented at one point in their lives. But after time, over time, they had almost all managed to become documented, and it hadn't been a major issue. I think for young people who are just hitting the labor market today, many of them have grown up their entire lives in the United States, or virtually their entire lives in the United States, but because they were born abroad, uh, they remain undocumented. And it is since 1996, and particularly since 2001, become much, much harder for people to obtain legal status. That is a huge problem facing us in the future. I mean, we have this fairly large population of folks who are American in every practical way, you know, but are technically illegal immigrants through absolutely no fault of their own. You know, they're in this status that limits their job opportunities, that limits their educational opportunities. I think there's every cultural reason to think that if left to their own devices, these folks would be incorporating into American institutions, uh, I don't know that perfectly seamlessly, but would be getting ahead in all kinds of ways. However, faced with this lack of opportunities, forced on them by the fact that their legal status, which very often they don't even become really aware of until they're in high school, we're just throwing away, you know, the talent of a coming generation of people. And I really think one of the issues that has to be addressed urgently at this point is the legal status of the children of immigrants who are, for all practical intents and purposes, Americans. And it's become a really pressing issue simply because we now have a cohort of folks in that situation, a large number of people in that situation, who are entering labor force years, you know, who, who are now old enough for it to become a real problem. I think that if more Americans focused on the long run, if they looked at the children of immigrants and the sorts of Americans they're becoming and the way our institutions are changing, they would probably end up with a more optimistic view of immigration in general. As in the past, I think the lifeblood of our great cities is the fact that they attract an awful lot of newcomers. New York in particular, benefits from the fact that every 23-year-old on the planet wants to be here. This is a tremendous resource, and to the extent that we make it legally difficult for people to do this, we're sort of throwing away the first-round draft pick of, you know, every other country on the planet. And I've often wondered why we would want to do that. 
All right. Dr. Kassinitz, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. Philip Kassinitz is a sociology professor at the City University of New York Graduate Center and Hunter College and the co-author of Inheriting the City, The Children of Immigrants Come of Age. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Former U.S. Housing and Urban Development Secretary Henry Cisneros says inheriting the city provides insights that will shape policies, improve services, and teach the nation how and why immigration works. We talked with him earlier this week about New York's and his own immigrant history. You're a grandson of Mexican immigrants. Looking back on your life, how would you say that shaped you as a person? Well, it was very profound. Uh, grew up in a household that, uh, uh, while American, my uncles were five of them served in World War II in the military, was at the same time tied to the heritage of Mexico. We grew up in San Antonio in a setting that I have called Norman Rockwell-esque, except all the faces were brown. It was a completely Latino neighborhood. The food, the colors, the sounds, the names, it shaped my participation in public life uh, because uh, the growing, burgeoning role of Latinos in the local politics. And later, when I became Secretary of Housing, and I think I was better able to appreciate the immigrant tradition that is so critical and vital a part of our country. And it certainly helped me to see this as something important, an asset, and not something to be afraid of because I came through it and from it. What's interesting about your story compared to early immigrants to the United States is the fact that you maintained your cultural heritage. Those immigrants look to shed that connection. Well, I think the country has come a long way in terms of understanding that it is possible for people to live a heritage and at the same time be completely loyal and committed to the future of this country. It was possible for me to learn English and not have to display Spanish. You know, it's not an either-or proposition. Uh, our, our, our complex human psyche is capable of, of understanding nuance. We didn't think that was possible before, but it is. You make no apologies about it. You believe that immigrants need to master English, right? Absolutely. I think uh, the de- English is the de facto language of this country. Anyone who wants to get to get ahead has to learn English. You have said if Latinos succeed, so will America. Why do you feel so strongly about that? Latinos are the fastest growing minority in the United States, the largest minority today. Everything about this country depends upon growth, and the growth of America is going to be fueled by ethnic minorities, but particularly Latinos. So the country cannot afford to have those large numbers left behind. It becomes a mathematical reality that we create such a large burden on the society unless this community is productive, well-compensated, paying taxes, good citizens, literate. We're not going to have a middle class if we don't develop it out of our minority population. Just a simple, mathematical, observable, documentable proposition. Is there anything that you have seen that you either like or don't like about what's taking place here in New York City in that regard? I think New York is understands the immigrant story and probably does a better job than most cities in the country. Uh, New York, because of this immigrant dynamic that we're talking about, reached a population of 8 million in the year 2000. And now the city planning department of New York says in 2025, it's going to be 9 million people. And most of that 9 million are going to be a who's who of people from every country in the world. So New York City 
people have to create the kind of openness that I'm describing in, 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 in business, in small business, in access to the financial sector, in, in the schools and education. It is that important to the nation. This is no longer a matter of civil rights or compassion or doing it out of some humanitarian instincts. This is the future of the country we're talking about, and it's, and it's uh, uh, prosperity going forward. How do you feel about what you're seeing so far from the current administration about the things you're talking about here? Well, I, th- I think the current administration is doing you know, the best it can, but as a country, uh, we've got to do more than just what government can do. This is a societal challenge. We have to recognize that this is a, a kind of a two-way street. We say to immigrants, look, we want your labor, we want your energy, we want your manpower, uh, we need that for the future of this country. In return, as a nation, we keep the doors to the middle class open, home ownership and education and access to higher education and scholarships. And uh, this is a strategy that we've got to redouble as a society. It's not just, you know, the Department of Education. It's every school district across the country. So this is a big societal challenge, and it has everything to do with who we're going to be. So a lesson to be learned here, perhaps. Absolutely. There's a lesson to be learned in the immigrant tradition of New York, and it's applicable uh, in every place in America where this story is unfolding. And that means this story of, of creating opportunity and openness is really it really very much the future of the nation. Okay. Mr. Cisneros, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Henry Cisneros was the Clinton administration's top housing official in the mid-1990s. He currently serves as the executive chairman of the housing development company City View. She's known as the patron saint of immigrants, and she got that title from Pope Pius XII back in the early 50s. Mother Frances Xavier Cabrini was an immigrant herself from Italy, and she devoted her life to working with the impoverished, the sick, and the uneducated in New York City, a place where immigration was large and the poor were many. Her body now lies in repose at the Mother Cabrini High School Chapel in Upper Manhattan. I paid a visit to the shrine and spoke with Sister Thomasina Lansky to find out what makes Mother Cabrini so very special. What an amazing place here. I have never been here. I walked in and I was really awestruck. A lot of people have that first expression when they come in. Um, We're sort of like the unknown sort of respite for people. Tell us about Francis Xavier Cabrini. Well, she was born in um, 1850, and she was the youngest of uh, 13 children. She was very frail when she was young, and so she was educated at home by her sister Rose, and she always wanted to come to, um, to be a missionary, and she held that as a secret because of sickness. So the uh, bishop uh, asked her to, to go to the House of Providence, which was like an orphanage, for two weeks, and that went into six years. And um, her desire was really to go to, the, to, to China. And the uh, Pope asked her not to go to China, but to go to the West. Sister, how is it that Mother Cabrini became the patron saint of immigrants? Well, in 1950, Pope Pius XII declared her the patron saint of immigrants. And that was due because of mainly Mother Cabrini's work was all with immigrants. It came with the Italian immigrants and every group of immigrants that came in after the missionary sisters had sort of worked with in one way or another. Today, our population mainly is Latino and Haitians. So most of our work is with this high school that we have is probably 95% immigrants or immigrant parents. 
When did she first arrive in the United States? She arrived in 1889, and so uh, we became the Missionary Sisters in 1880 when we arrived in New York City. She went on to do great work. She founded so many institutions, including this facility here. She was 67 institutions, and she died when she was 67. So for every year of life, she founded a mission. She also crossed the water 23 times, and she was petrified of crossing the water. She almost drowned as a child, and she always had that that fear of water. But when she felt God was asking her to do something, and I guess this is what made her a saint, she didn't stop. Where a normal person like myself maybe say, oh, I don't know if I want to cross the water <laughs> if I have such a fear. Uh, she never let anything interfere with what she believed was God's will. Sister, tell us how the order got involved with hospitals. Well, Mother Cabrini was a teacher, and she felt that the missionary sisters were basically a teaching order. Um, and then there was this very strong need for the Italian immigrants to have some place to go when they got sick. They didn't speak English, they didn't know any doctors, and they had no money. It was a mother's sense that the, this is what the Blessed Mother wanted her to do. And like I said, if she felt that it was God's will, there was nothing that stopped her. Uh, so we had the first hospital for immigrants within, in New York. I know she spent a lot of time in Chicago in addition to New York, right? Yes. Uh, in Chicago, we had uh, three hospitals at one time. She founded Columbus Hospital in Chicago. And um, the Italian immigrants didn't really have any place to go. They didn't speak the language. They had very menial jobs. And she actually moved in Lakeview Avenue, Columbus Hospital, uh, to give them a rest when they get sick. So she started the hospital mainly to bring the immigrants out of the poverty. Her whole thought was what makes it easier for the poor to survive in this, this world. I know that she also established an orphanage in upstate New York in Ulster County. She started West Park. That was an orphanage. It was mainly a lot of the people had one, one parent when it first started, or they were both working and they couldn't take care of them. And so uh, we bought the property. She took the sisters up to the mountain and she said, drill here for water. And to this day, we have a natural spring up there that she found. She was the first American citizen to be canonized. Mm -hmm. How did that come about? You have to look at what makes a saint and why we have saints. And the church takes people who are extraordinary in their life. Um, She was a deep woman of prayer and a woman who stopped at nothing if she thought it was the will of God. And, uh, you know, to be canonized, you need to have certain miracles. And she had her share of miracles. Uh, One of our own sisters in Seattle who was dying of cancer and ulceration of the legs. And the sisters, we have a tradition that when a sister is dying, that we will stand around the bed and pray and, and, you know, walk her through that. And she was just laying there, and all of a sudden she got up and said, get me my clothes, I have to go back to work. And the sisters were shocked. She said, no, Mother told me that I'm not ready to go back to work. And she got dressed and went back to work, and she had she lived many, many years after that with no sign of cancer or the ulcerations on her leg. So those were the, some of the things that gave her the cause to become canonized. Now, Mother Cabrini died from complications of malaria in Chicago at the age of 67. She was initially entombed in New York, in upstate New York, in Ulster County. When she died, well, we had our novitiate up there eventually, and we also had our, all our sisters buried up there. And when she was up for beatification and canonization, they brought the body back down to New York, which was in the school area, in the chapel there. So they had her laying there, and in 1959, they built a shrine. 
and the Florence Shrine is going to celebrate its 50th anniversary this year. Describe the shrine for our radio listeners. It's in a very beautiful location overlooking the Hudson, very peaceful. There actually is a bench sitting outside by the chapel, which Mother Cabrini used. Uh, when you walk in, you walk into a very large chapel uh, where we have the uh, body of Mother Cabrini uh, open to the, the public to see and view. Do you know why it was decided that Mother Cabrini would lie in state like this? Basically, it was because of the beatification and the canonization. West Park was very far at that point of time, and there needed to be medical experts looking at the body and all that. She died from natural causes. I mean, there's, there's so many steps to go through. So it was more of a necessary thing to bring her where, where it was easier for people to be able to do that research. Now, I'm sure people do question, is that actually her? Am I looking at her physical body lying there? What's the answer to that question? Her body is there. She is not intact, however. And the face is a, uh, a wax kind of a face of her, but her body is there. Sister, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Sister Thomasina Lansky talking about the patron saint of immigrants, Mother Frances Xavier Cabrini. Mother Cabrini's body lies in repose at the Mother Cabrini High School Chapel in Upper Manhattan. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Skylar Srivastava. Have a great weekend.